so this morning, as we are uh, in this Lent season, uh, we're going to talk about, uh, I think, one of the things that we want to move into in, in Lent, and that is uh, examination of our lives and repentance as God reveals sin and things that we need to change. And uh, it's kind of what happened uh, Ash Wednesday, if you were here. And I've, honestly, I've never participated in an Ash Wednesday or really in the season of Lent. It seems like all the, the churches since, uh, since my new birth and my, my faith in Christ, all the churches that I've been a part of for, for years have never really acknowledged or celebrated uh, the season of Lent. So this is new for me, and I'm I'm, I'm enjoying it. There, there's sacrifices involved, and uh, but those those sacrifices and the things that you kind of put aside to make room for God gives gives God a greater place in our lives, and and so it's really really good. But part of that is self examination, and uh, and I remember uh, Ash Wednesday just sensing the presence of God, and as we uh, examine ourselves and we turned our hearts towards God and ask God to help uh, bring repentance into our lives, and we had the the ashes on our forehead in the form of a cross. It was just a powerful time of just letting God kind of invade our space. And we want to kind of lean into that a little bit more this morning. And uh, one of the things that I've discovered about sin is we all do it. (laughs) There's nobody here this morning that can kind of exclude themselves and say, well, I don't have a sin problem. You may not have a drinking problem. You may not have this problem over here. Your sin may be different than your neighbor's or than mine, but we all have sin. We all need to kind of lean into this and kind of figure out how we, how we solve this problem. One of the things that I found out is that we cannot solve the problem of sin on our own. All of our self-will, all of our strength will never overcome sin. I remember before I got saved, uh, I, I, I had this cussing problem as a child. And I remember deciding, I'm going to quit cussing. I'm going to stop my cussing. I, my grandma had come to town and she'd overheard me say a cuss word. And I felt so bad because my grandma was so perfect, I thought, and just so wonderful. And, and I thought, i got to quit cussing. And I remember that lasted for about a day. And then I cussed and I just, I couldn't stop no matter how hard I tried. And maybe you've been there on different habits and behaviors and sins that you've tried to stop and you can't. And it's so hard alone. We weren't meant to overcome our behavior issues and our sin and our transgressions alone. Years ago, I, uh, I decided I was going to be a painter uh, my three boys uh, were all artists as they grew up, and, and today are as well. They, they, uh, their artistry takes different forms in music and film and video and, uh, and uh, dr- graphics and drawing. And, and, but, but I remember being inspired by them uh, to, to, to try to be a, a painter. I wanted to become a, a great painter. And, and so I, I went down to Hobby Lobby because that's where great painters get their canvas and paint. And I got my materials and I came back and went back to my bedroom and I put my canvas up on a tripod and I got my paints and I started. And I, I was, for some reason, feeling very patriotic at that time. And I thought, well, I'm going to paint an American eagle. And so I worked really hard at this and 
painted it up, and and uh, and I thought, man, this is beautiful, and I can't wait to show my boys. And and so I, I took my painting out into the kitchen, and I set it up, and as I came home from school, uh, uh, there it was, my my first painting ever, and I have a have a copy of that painting. So it was an amazing eagle. I mean, it was just uh, a masterpiece. Uh, and and as I showed them, they did what you did. They just literally out loud, didn't even hold back, just began to laugh. And and <laughs> not mocking me, but just, you know, it's hard not to laugh when you see that eagle with his uh, eagle fingers and toes. And, and But I got the main parts. I got the wings and the beak and the eye, and, and I got the colors pretty pretty good. But but uh, so I was a little bit discouraged uh, in the presentation of my first my first project. So I went back and uh, I thought I'm gonna I'm gonna get better. You know I'm I'm, I'm not gonna give up on this. So so I, I got online and I bought uh, books on great painters uh, and I, I I tried to learn the art a little bit more and figure it out and and uh, went back to Hobby Lobby and got another can and, and just and so I came back and about a month later I finished and completed my second eagle. And this is the honest truth. This is the second eagle I painted and I presented it to my boys and they were amazed. So there you go. And I found it is amazing what you can do with paint by numbers. It is absolutely crazy amazing. And the truth of the matter is I painted this, but I didn't do it alone. We have to learn how to participate with those better, stronger, and wiser than us. None of us can get through this life alone. None of us can conquer sin alone. And I hope you'll see sin as more than just, well, God's checklist of right or wrong. I hope you'll see sin and transgression for what it really is. It's destructive. It brings pain and hurt into our world. It brings pain into relationships and families. It destroys it. It leaves just a, uh, you know, just a wake of destruction so often. And it's not about just trying to be a good Christian or just trying to check off our list. It's about God loving us enough to want to remove this sin that has so many wages so that we can live a life not just that pleases him, but doesn't destroy us and destroy those around us. And the truth is, sin is so easy, isn't it? Like, it's just so easy to get into. It just, you, it's, you don't have to work at it. It takes no discipline. It doesn't take a commitment. I'm going to sin today. I'm going to really, really try. No, it just is so e- it's so easy to slander. It's so easy to go. so easy to get angry. It's so easy to allow the lust of our eyes to go places we don't want them to go. It's just such an easy thing. And yet God wants to come into our humanity and into our struggle and, and help us. I remember uh, as I, you know, years ago, as I, I looked at this issue of sin and I was struggling with sin in my own life, I had hidden sin and private sin and darkness in my life that I hated. And I, I was like, God, how do I get free from this? And what do I need to do? And I just keep, you know, kind of just going back and repent and go back. And I'm just not uh, getting freedom. And, and as I kind of look through uh, the sin issue in the scripture, I I kind of saw all kinds of definitions of sin. And, and you know, we, we, we usually look to the, the Ten Commandments. 
and we, we see these commandments that we, we, we shouldn't lie and shouldn't deceive and shouldn't, you know, uh, be disobedient to our parents and we shouldn't murder and commit adultery and have a, other gods. And we see all those commandments and I thought, man, I'm breaking several of those uh, how do I overcome this list? And, and then I, I, you know, you look at the Sermon on the Mount and Jesus talks about the Beatitudes and all the things that we should be and pure and merciful and loving and good and kind and faithful. And, and as you look at those, you begin to realize, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm missing some of those. And then you look at St. Paul's list and Paul's got all these lists of sins. And, and it just seemed like the more and more I looked at those lists, the more guilt and shame and, and, and just, uh, I didn't have the will to overcome them. And they're all great lists, and they all have precedence, and they're all things that we, I think we need to look at. But I think we've got to go a little bit deeper than that in dealing and understanding sin. As I was trying to define sin and kind of grapple with this, uh, I came across a story that really liberated me. And it, it totally kind of set me free in my understanding of good and evil and to live a life that is pleasing to God. And uh, it's interesting, the words uh, that were penned in the story were not from a, a theologian or a, a great philosopher or a wise old minister. Uh, they were actually, <laughs> they were penned by a novelist. And this novelist was the uh, head writer of the soap opera, One Life to Live. Now, I don't know if that's still on, but I know it was years ago. I remember it being a very popular soap opera. And and uh, not that I watched soap operas that often, but, but I just remember seeing, seeing, seeing it on TV from time to time. And the, the writer was Michael Malone. And he, he wrote this book appropriately called Handling Sin. And uh, there's a story about this uh, soon-to-be-defrocked Episcopalian minister and his son, Raleigh. And Raleigh's nickname was Speck. And so they were having this conversation, father and his son, Raleigh. And uh, his son had come home from Sunday school that day, and he said, Dad, uh, the Sunday school teacher got up, and she made a list on the blackboard of all of these sins that we as human beings struggle with. And then she looked at us with this kind of harsh look, and she said, if any of you commit these sins, you will go to hell even if you're not a grown-up. <laughs> and and uh, Raleigh's father looked back at him and said, well, Mrs., and her name was Mrs. Jemison. He said, well, Mrs. Jemison is a horse's rear end. <laughs> Except he, he used a different word than that. I can't repeat the word that he used in the, the actual text. Uh, and then the son said, well, cursing is one of the sins, Dad. And Dad looked back and said, bulldookie, except he used a different word than that. Now Raleigh, his son was kind of flushed with excitement. He looked at his father's face only inches away, and, and he could see almost his own face in the dark of the blue eyes. And uh, Specs said his father's, said, remember when Christ said that there were only two commandments? And he went on to describe the commandments, love your... And Specs interrupted and he replied, I know, Dad, I already know. Love God with all your heart and then love your neighbor as yourself. He said, right. So he rubbed his boy's corduroy knee and he said, well, there's only one sin 
What do you think it is? Riley looked into the eyes of his father, kind of hoping for a clue to the answer. He didn't like being wrong, and so he finally answered, and he said, not loving them? And his father said, exactly. Not loving God and not loving our neighbor as ourselves. Didn't that make it pretty easy? I began to look at sin in that light and began to define sin this way, failing to love God from my heart and not just my head. In other words, not just a group of lists, but, but really failing to love God from my heart and then failing to really love myself well enough to have adequate reserve to love my neighbors. That if we could just love God from our heart and if we could learn to love our neighbors out of the reserves of God's love that we've received because of his grace and his goodness, we would, I think, walk in a, a greater dimension of his forgiveness and his goodness. There's a story that I think really deals with the two big issues of sin so wonderfully in Scripture. And I think the, the biggest issue is, is us understanding that we can be forgiven, that we can be graced, that we can walk in the forgiveness of God, that if we don't allow that to come into our lives, that we won't begin to live out a life that is pleasing to God. And the second issue is once we've been forgiven and we've all maybe been there where we've just cried out for mercy and said, God, I'm sorry that I've done this and I, I repent. And then, uh, and then we look for the power to live differently that we say, God, we need, we need to change. We want to be transformed. And how do we see transformation come in our life where we don't repeat or we don't continually go back or we don't have a practice of sin? Not that we'll ever, ever be delivered totally from this body of sin until uh, Jesus comes, until we go on to be with him. But there is a, a, an opportunity for us to move into a, a, just a greater dimension of purity and to walking with him and, and not constantly having our sins beset us. So I read this scripture, uh, actually really studied it about a year ago, and I want to bring out some things that, that uh, I felt like the Lord showed me. It's found in John chapter 8, and we'll just read a few verses beginning in verse 2 from the NIV version. It says, At dawn he appeared, speaking of Jesus, again in the temple courts, where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. And the teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law of Moses, it commands us to stone such a woman. What do you say? And they were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and he started to write on the ground with his finger. And when they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and he said to them, Let anyone of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left. The woman was standing there and Jesus straightened up and he asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. The King James says, go and sin no more. This is a, an amazing story. These Pharisees 
grabbed this woman that was actually caught in the act. This wasn't hearsay. They didn't hear about it. They actually showed up wherever this was happening, caught her in the act of adultery, took her out, and, and, and basically was telling her, you will be executed for this sin. Brought her into the public square where Jesus was and said, okay, here's the situation, Jesus. What are you going to do? And I had three questions to kind of move through this, this story and this narrative. I, the first question I had was, where was the man or where were the men? Why was just the woman brought to the public square? Because almost every adultery case I've ever heard of has involved two people. I, I, in fact, I've never heard of a case that didn't involve two people. I think it, it takes two people. And yet somehow they just brought the woman. They left the man behind but brought the woman. And that tells us something that these religious folks really weren't interested in justice. They really weren't interested in the law of God. All they wanted to do was trap Jesus. In fact, they were willing to see a woman die just so they could make a point that they're making a point, that they're one-upping Jesus was worth a woman losing her life. And that's the religious judgmentalism that can creep into our world when we think we've got it all together and nobody else quite lives up to us. And that's why one of the things that is such a, an important part of our faith is just a, a spirit of humility that we have a humble heart, that we, we realize we are all on a journey together and our, my sin may be different than yours and your struggle may be different than, than your friends, but we are struggling and moving towards God together and we're encouraging and strengthening one another. And I think we've all been in that place where we've judged. I know I have. We've got to get to a place where we have compassion and care for those around us. I think something else we see from this is that we never really get into sin alone. It seems like we, we have partnership in sin, that there's, there's people that kind of contribute to our sin, that there's things that happen in our life through relationships and influences that are brought to bear in our life that, that kind of point us in a certain direction. It may be a friend, it may be somebody we grew up with, it may be a neighbor, it may even be you know, something we watched on television or on the internet, but there's, there's just always influences that are kind of pushing us and pointing us towards sin. And that's why we need this right here. That's why we need the ecclesia, the church, the gathering of God's people, because we are better together than we are apart. We're stronger together than we are alone. We need each other. We've got to have each other. The second question I, I, I asked was, well, what was the trap? What exactly was the trap? How were they going to trap Jesus? And uh, digging through some research and kind of studying it through and reading a few commentaries, I think, I think this was the trap. You see, the only ones that could execute a person for a crime, or in this case, a sin, in that day was the Roman government. Only the Roman government could pronounce uh, a death sentence upon people in that day, Rome ruled the day. And so if Jesus would have said, yes, we need to execute her. Yes, she's worthy of stoning. Yes, let's destroy her. He would have violated Rome. He would have been in big trouble with Rome. 
But on the other hand, the Pharisees knew that if you would have said, well, no, we're not going to execute, or no, we're going to show mercy, they would have pointed out to him that you violated the law. You said you've come to fulfill the law, the law of God, the law of, of Jehovah, and, and now you're not fulfilling this law, and they would have trapped him either way. Either answer, yes or no, they had him trapped. And of course, Jesus got out of this trap. I love the way Jesus responds to people. He's so wise and so smart. So he says, uh, well, I'm not going to answer you yes or no. I'm just going to go down and, and kind of play in the dirt here. <laughs> he just kind of leans down and, you know, he didn't say anything. It's just like Jesus just kind of, hmm, you know. And they kept questioning him. They kept talking to him. And finally, he arose from the dirt. He said, okay, well, any of you that don't have any sin, why don't you go ahead and get the stoning started? If you've got no sin, go ahead. Be the first to cast a stone. And then he got down and he began to write some more. And, and they stood around for a while and they were, I'm sure, looking at what he was writing. People, there was this tense moment, this awkward moment as others were watching on. And finally, the scripture says, something dramatic happened. Everything changed in that moment. It went from these angry religious leaders ready to kill this woman to literally dropping rocks from the oldest to the youngest and just walking away. Jesus didn't have to say another word, but they just walked away. And the old and the older and the oldest and finally the younger began to follow him pretty soon. Every single one had left, and the only one left standing there was Jesus and that woman. And we know that he was the one that had no sin. He was the one that could have picked up a rock. He was the one that could have justified her stoning, but he said, I don't condemn you either. There is no condemnation for you. And so that brought me to my third question is what happened in that moment? What happened in that dirt? What was he writing? Because the word there wasn't just scrawling. It was actually the, the, the Greek word graphos where we get our word graphics. And it was, it was like design. It was like, you know, uh, a scrawling that had a point. It, it wasn't just, you know, kind of making a mess that there was some design to this. There was something being said in this design or in this writing in the dirt. And so I began to, what is it? What was it? What did he write that all of a sudden changed everything to cause these men to walk away? Some scholars believe he was actually writing the names of the men who held the rocks in the, in the dirt and in the dust. And why would he do that? He knew a lot of these men. They followed him everywhere. They had been there before. They had been critical of him before. He knew many of them. So why would he write their names in the dust? One of the, one of the passages of Scripture that the rabbis of, of uh, Jerusalem in that day knew so well, and the scholars and even these Pharisees, they knew this passage 
This was a passage that they held dear. It was found in Jeremiah chapter 17 and verse number 13. And listen to how it reads. Lord, you are the hope of Israel. All who forsake you will be put to shame. Those who turn away from you will be written in the dust because they have forsaken the Lord, the spring of living water. Wow. Maybe he wrote their names. Maybe, maybe he wrote some other sins in the dust because adultery wasn't the only sin deserving of capital punishment in the Old Testament law. There were other sins, believe it or not, that you could suffer death as a result of your sin. There, there was cursing the name of God, idol worship, cursing your parents. None of us would have children in this day. <laughs> At least I wouldn't be alive. Uh, a stubborn or rebellious son, violating the Sabbath, being a member of the community that has gone astray, kidnapping a member of Israel, prophesying falsely. All of these things you could be killed for under the Jewish law. And I guarantee that these men had committed some of these sins. But they walked away. So I don't know what happened. I'm just speculating. I don't know if they saw their names in the ground. I don't know if they saw their sins written in the dust. But somehow, whatever they saw caused them to humble themselves, drop their rocks, and walk away. And a woman's life was saved. And I just want you to know that we are dust to dust. We are ashes to ashes. We came from the dust. We're going to go back to the dust and sometimes our lives can feel helpless and human and meaningless and we struggle with our sin. But Jesus loves to show up in the middle of our guilt and our shame and our messiness and our humanity and begin to write in our dust. You know what dust really is? Dust is actually pulverized rock. The very substance that was meant to kill her became the substance that Jesus wrote in that liberated her and gave her freedom, a chance to live again. God loves to write in our dust. He loves to draw his beauty in our dust. He loves to bring transformation and change and second and third and fourth and fifth chances in the dust of our life. But that brings us, I think, to the most powerful part of this story where he turns to this woman and says, I give you grace and I give you love and I give you forgiveness. I don't condemn you. But then he speaks those five formidable words. He says, go and sin no more. And that's it. That's it. And, and you know, she goes, we, we don't see any more conversation. And, you know, when I read this, I thought, oh, she needed a little bit more than that. You know, that, that wasn't quite enough. Go and sin no more and, you know, get some counseling, you know, and, 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 you know, do this and do that. And here's a whole list. And, but Jesus just, there was like, there was this power in the words of Christ. Go and sin no more. It wasn't just a, a kind of an observation for her. It wasn't just, you know, I hope you do better. There was authority and power in the word of Christ when he said, go and sin no more. With those words, there was this sense of, you have my power to overcome this sin in your life. 
We don't know, you know, maybe this was a, uh, a sin that she committed often. Maybe she was a prostitute. We don't know her whole story. But Jesus said, I want to give you the power not to do this anymore. So yes, I want to give you grace. And yes, I want to give you forgiveness. But I also, with that grace and forgiveness, I want to cause you to conquer. I want to cause you to walk in some victory over this where it doesn't continue to destroy you and destroy others. So how do we go and sin no more? I think there's a few things we can pull from this story that will, will help us to, to move forward in a life that pleases God and, to, and to, to, you know, be able to take these areas of sin in our life that we struggle with continually and maybe have become practices and begin to walk away from them. So here's the first thing that I think is the, the goodness of God. God's goodness and kindness changes us. It transforms us when we let it. Romans 2, 4 says, do not, or do not show contempt for the riches of his kindness. And we do that sometimes. We, we actually show contempt for his riches and he wants to show us mercy. He wants to show us love and we resist. We're like, no, I don't deserve it. I don't deserve it. It's not about you. It's not about me. It's not about us deserving. We don't deserve anything good in this life. We are all wretched. We are all sinners. We have all done wrong before God. Our righteousness or our best is filthy, in, 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 according to the scripture, in the eyes of God. And so we can't show contempt to his goodness when he loves us and reaches out to us and says, I want to pour goodness into your life. And it's not because of what you've done. We can't con- show contempt to that. We've got to say, God, thank you for your love and your goodness. And he says, but in forbearance and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance. You see, when we receive his goodness and his kindness and his love, it moves us to repentance. When we're overwhelmed with that love, it does something inside of us. It just says, God, you've loved me so much. I've been forgiven so much. I want to love you well. It just changes the inside of us when we're loved well. If you've ever been loved well by somebody, if someone ever shown you kindness that was undeserved or grace that was undeserved or something that, oh, I, I didn't deserve that. Have you ever, have you, ever uh, you know, been speeding and going like, you know, 90 miles an hour in a 50 mile an hour zone and the policeman pulled you over and he, he let you off? He said, I'm not gonna give you a ticket. I just slow down and, and, uh, and then this overwhelming gratitude comes because you're thinking money and points and I'm in trouble and I'm going to lose my insurance and, and all of that goes away in an instant because this, this officer decided to have kindness. Now, I know it doesn't happen very often, but when it does, it is so good. You're just like, I love police officers. I want to do well. I'm going to drive good from now on. It produces a transformation of the, maybe the way you drive. And maybe it doesn't last forever, but at least it begins. And God's even greater and bigger because his love never quits. And his love is eternal and his love is more powerful than the love of a human being. I think the second thing that, that we, we see, even though this woman's sin was made public and she didn't have any choice, there, there was, whether she wanted it or not, a confession of what she did. She didn't deny it. She didn't say, no, I didn't do this. There, there was this public confession. There was this, you know, public, you know, uncovering of her, of her sin. And God's best and God's highest is that we would bring our sins to God, that we wouldn't have to get to a place where it's uncovered in a public way or uh, there's some exposure that would, that would bring, you know, uh, shame in our life in some way. There, there, there's this element of confession that is so important. 
And confession has been a part of the church historical for years and years and years. And, 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 and yet I think we've got away from the, the, the value and the power of confession. James 5.16 says, Therefore, confess your sins to each other. Wow. Not just to God. To each other. And pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. It says that we've, we've got this opportunity to bring confession of our transgressions and our sins. And I can tell you from experience that when we hide our sins, when we cover up, and we cover up sometimes for all the right reasons in our own mind, well, I don't want to shame my family. I don't want to hurt my family. I don't want to bring harm. And I, you know, and, and or I, I, can, I can beat this on my own. I can win this. I don't need any help. God's grace is sufficient. God's power. I'm just going to pray more, fast more, believe more. And I can do this alone. I don't need somebody else's help. And yet the scripture says, no, we must bring confession. That when we confess to each other and go the next step, invite God into that, that space and say, God, we, we need you. We pray. We, we ask you to move into this space and, and not just bring forgiveness, but bring healing. And, and, and sure, physical healing can be a part of this, but I, I just want to submit to you that part of that healing is, is the healing of those wounds and the healing of your emotions and the healing of, of whatever has been broken in your life that has continually moved you towards that sin, there can be healing so that you can be transformed and you can be changed. And I don't know about you, but I've been on the other end of not just confessing my sins, but I've been the confessee. How many have ever been there where somebody has trusted you enough and believed in you enough and found you loyal enough as a friend or a loved one to say, I've got to tell you this. This is what I've done, and I want to confess it before you and God, and I need help because I haven't been able to win this battle by myself. And when you receive a confession, that is a holy, holy thing. It is so holy somebody believe and trust in you enough that they would confess a sin and ask you to pray with them. And as a confessee, when you receive that confession, what is your inclination? It isn't just to pray. It isn't just to say, well, I hope you get better. You want to do everything to help them to walk forward in freedom. You might move them into counseling or move them into uh, a, a, a deepening relationship with God or closer to the church, but there, there are going to be things that you're going to do to help them to move forward in their faith. Confession is so important. Sin thrives in darkness when it's brought to light. There's something beautiful that happens. And then the last thing this morning is we need to make room for God in our temptation. You know, Lent is all about making room for God. It's, it's kind of extracting things out of our life and saying, God, I'm going to push this aside right now. I'm going to give you space. I'm going to make room for you. And I would encourage you in the middle of your tempting moments, the things that you struggle against, the sins that wage war internally with you, to just find a way to make room for God in that moment. You know, when Jesus was tempted in the wilderness... He made room for his father in that moment. How did he do it? He just countered that temptation with scripture. 
He didn't have a scroll. He didn't, he didn't pull out, you know, his, his iPhone and look it up on iBible. He didn't, he, he, you know what he did? He, he, had, he had put the Word of God in his heart. He had hid that scripture in his heart, and it just came out. He'd been Word, and, and, and he made room for, for God and made room for overcoming that temptation with scripture. So it may be scripture. There's some, some way that God wants to help you to move through that temptation. Maybe you've read this scripture before. I know I've read it, and there have been times where it didn't quite make sense or it seemed too easy. But 1 Corinthians 10, 13 says, No, uh, no temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you're tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. How many remember the, the King James version of that? That he'll make a way of what? Everyone say escape. That's the version I heard growing up. A way of escape. And, and the way I heard it and the way it was preached, it was like, you know, when you get into a temptation, all of a sudden, like God will be a magician. And he'll just make this way of escape, like it'll disappear. The temptation will go away, and all of a sudden, he'll feel great. And I never found that to be true of temptation. It wasn't like this instant escape. And as I uh, dug into this passage and go, 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 go into the, the text, it actually says that he will make a way through it. That the temptation may linger, and it may not be instant, but he, if we give him place, will help us to get through it. And I've learned that we have to make room for God when we're in that tempted place. Last, uh, last week, I think, yeah, last week, about 10 days ago, I guess, I, I got a call from one of my sons and, and he, uh, he lives in Dallas and um, he just needed his dad and uh, he was going through some things. So I jumped in the car uh, drove to Dallas, spent the afternoon and the evening with him. We had a wonderful time and worked through uh, a really difficult uh, time in his life and season that he'd been kind of walking through. And really, just remember walking out the next morning, getting in my car to drive back to Tulsa, just feeling so good. Just feeling, oh God, you're so gracious. You're so good. I just love what you're doing in my, my kid. And uh, got in my car and started driving down I-35 out of Dallas, out of the downtown towards... Uh, uh, get my way over to 75 to come back to Tulsa. I remember as I drove down the, the I-35 corridor there coming out of Dallas, I don't know if any of you have ever been there, but it's a corridor that billboard after billboard after billboard is just unbelievable, like just disgraceful. Just sin after sin after sin of all these establishments advertising their sinfulness and what they want you to engage in. And uh, it tweaked me. I remember just driving, and it was, oh. And my mind just kind of began to go into this tailspin mentally. Oh, I don't like this. Shame, pain, remembering some parts of my past. And, and I, just, I just started to spiral a little bit mentally. I wasn't thinking about stopping or visiting or doing anything like that, but I just, I just found my mind spiraling. And I remember just kind of thinking, what do I do, what do I do, what do I do? And I just found myself, and it, it was really a result of being in this community, 
being in this community. I just settled myself, and I just found my, I didn't plan to do this. It just came out of me. And I just, in that moment, I didn't close my eyes, but, but I was driving, and I, I just said, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. And when I finished that prayer, there was like a tangible presence of God in that car I'd never experienced. It was like, Everything that was spiraling in my head just completely went away. It's like God's will was being done on earth in that car, in that moment, as it was in heaven. That he was delivering me from the thoughts of evil in that moment. The presence of God invaded that place. And as I finished the prayer, I thought, oh, there was something that felt awkward about that prayer. I was was, was sitting alone and I'm praying, our Father, give us this day or day. There's no us. There's no hour. I said, I need, to, I need to go back and say that prayer the right way. I need to say, my Father who art in heaven. And as I said that in my head, the Spirit of the Lord stopped me and said, don't you dare pray, my Father. You go ahead and pray that again, our Father, because you are not alone. You are encompassed by a cloud of witnesses. You've got Peter and John and Paul and Moses and Elijah. You've got men and women in this community right here in Sanctuary that believe with you, that are standing with you, that love you. You've got a wife and you've got a family and you've got boys and you've got a mom and, and you've got people that are, you are not alone, even though you're by yourself. You declare it again, our Father. And as I pray that prayer again, I saw your faces, and I saw the faces of my pastors, and and I saw the faces of the saints, and I thought, I'm not alone in this moment of temptation. And God's grace came. And all I can tell you is there's no real formula for how you get through your temptation, how you get through to escape. But if you'll just simply in those moments make room for God and say, God, I invite you in. I don't know if it's through scripture or prayer or a worship CD or going to the church and saying, can I kneel at at a chair for an hour to pray? I don't know what it is. But if you'll just make room for God, God will guide you through and he'll give you grace. And so this morning, God loves you. He has graced you as you examine your life and say, God, reveal sin in my life. It is for your good. It's because he cares. He wants to take out everything that are going to bring wages of death in your life. And then he wants to give you the power to live and to be transformed. And it may not happen overnight, but you'll take one step after another step after another step, moving towards glory to glory, moving towards his perfection, knowing that we'll never be free from this body of sin, that we'll never, ever get to perfection, that we'll never experience that until our bodies are changed and we are changed in a twinkling of an eye, but we can move closer and stronger in our faith each day. Let's stand to our feet.